All right. Thank you very much, Callum. It's an absolute privilege to be here. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Graham. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, I primarily look after uh, the kind of music that goes on on a Sunday morning and Sunday evening and during the week. Uh, and uh, during, the, uh, during the summer holidays when the pastors are away, uh, they bring out the reserves. And tonight you're stuck with me. So uh, bear with me. We'll get there as we look through uh, Luke chapter 12 uh, to tonight. As we come to God's word, though, let's just remind ourselves of the importance of, of why we do this week by week. And as I was preparing, I was reminded of um, something that's written just at the start of um, Alistair Begg's devotionals that I've been going through this year. And he, he writes this, God's word is a glorious gift. Our father has given it to us in order that we might know his son and that we might live in the power of his spirit in obedience to his truth. It's worth pausing to consider this reality. When we read the Bible, we are dealing with the words of the creator of the universe, spoken to his creation. It's impossible for us to understand ourselves, our world, or anything else without his word. As we read a newspaper, as we try to make sense of our society, as we look to our history and to our future, it is the Bible we need if we are to get a handle on it all. God's word is the truth that you and I need to navigate every day of this life and to point us to the one in whom we find the life that really is life. As we come to God's word tonight, let's pray together as we do so. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth be that of the truths of your word and nothing more. May you work through the Holy Spirit that we as your people may be changed and transformed more into the likeness of Christ our Savior and Lord. Amen. So where do we find ourselves in Luke tonight? Well, we're in the middle of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in the throes of his ministry and his teaching um, to his followers and to the great crowds that are following him wherever he goes. We've seen Jesus' birth foretold. We've seen his birth. We've seen John the Baptist preparing the way for the Savior. We've seen the disciples called miracles performed, teaching that is unlike anything anyone has ever witnessed before. We've seen the coming of a storm, the raising of the dead, forgiveness given, the foretelling of Jesus' death, his followers and disciples sent out ahead of him. And last week, we saw Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees rebuking them as they were growing in their opposition to him. Meanwhile, we're also seeing his kingdom grow. What a journey it's been as we go through that. It's been an amazing journey to see all these things recorded for us. And tonight as we find throughout the direct teaching of Jesus recorded for us in his word, he turns to address his followers, both warning them and encouraging them. And we're going to look at this section tonight in three parts. So for those who are taking notes, we just put the next slide up. Um, We're going to have a look at 1 to 11, um, a heart of rightful fear. We're going to have a look at 13 to 21, a heart that is rich towards God. And then we're going to look finally at 22 to 34, a heart that demonstrates faith. And if I was to um, kind of summarize what we're going to be hearing tonight, 
and I can't read it because it's too small on that screen, is we're going to look at a heart that fears the Lord as a heart that is rich towards God, shown in a life of faith that treasures the things of God. So that is the big picture we're going to look tonight as we go through these verses. And we're just going to walk through them as we go. So let's have a look at the verses we have tonight. 12 chapter 1, meanwhile... When a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so they were trampling on one another. I'm going to pause there. So picture the scene. Jesus has just been eating with a Pharisee in his house where he's been pulled up at every moment by his host for not conforming to the Pharisaic tradition or law. Which turns into quite a rebuke from Jesus where Jesus presents these, these woes. If you haven't uh, listened to these uh, Go back last week, listen to Pierre Reeve's sermon on this. These condemnations towards the religious leaders of the day. And then when Jesus leaves the house, he's then accosted by other Pharisees and the teachers of the law who start quite aggressively questioning him in order to catch him out with their questions, looking for some form or, of breaking Jesus' armor on which they could pin charges or discredit him. And during this time, a great crowd had gathered. And I love the not-so-incidental details that Luke describes in his account as he records the life of Jesus. So they were trampling on one another, just trying to get close to Jesus to hear what he has to say. And it makes me think of the times I've had the pleasure of catching the tube in London at rush hour. I don't know if you've ever done this. Last time I was down, I arrived in London Victoria Station around 8.30 in the morning, and I had to get to Trafalgar Square for a meeting. Train after train approached the station, with a platform full every time, and I can only think that the London Tube doesn't conform to the laws of physics, but I saw people contort themselves into the most amazing and intriguing positions in order to fit on the trains. And after two failed attempts of me being incredibly polite, I decided the only way I was going to get to a meeting was to hug four strangers for the next 15 minutes as I got on and got off. But you see the picture that's happening here. Jesus' word is spreading. His gospel message was reaching out. People were hungry to be fed the words of Jesus. But before he addresses the crowds, he turns to his disciples and says... Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Just be thinking here about what we were looking at last week. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Jesus has just charged the Pharisees with hypocrisy. In chapter 11, 46, we see this, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. The Pharisees taught what they did not practice. In fact, what they preached made the burden of keeping the law that they were preaching harder. And to make it worse, they don't help anyone keep these additional burdens. In the light of day, in the eye of the public, they sought to teach with authority, portraying the image of one who is right with God, an example to be followed yet on the inside. In the darkness of their home, in the company of friends, away from the public's watching eye, their true intentions are opposite. 
And here Jesus is providing a warning to his disciples. Don't be like these people. Why? Because one day everything will be revealed, every thought, action, and word, whether public or in private, it will be subject to judgment. What you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. I don't know if I want that to happen. What warning this gives to his disciples, your conduct matters, your action matters, your words matter. Not only the public face of what you put on in front of other people, but your integrity matters. Integrity matters when no one else is watching. The real intentions of your heart matter. And one day judgment will come and these things will be made known. Therefore, in light of this, he goes on, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him. After your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's an interesting change of pace. Why this response from Jesus? Why does he take this on that way? Well, we've seen this in the past. God's prophets were persecuted and killed by man. And we know this pattern continues for God's people. As you read on, John the Baptist was killed. Jesus was killed. The apostles, many martyred, many killed, all persecuted for following Jesus. Jesus is saying here that persecution is coming. And it's coming from all sides. Even these religious leaders. But do not fear. Death is the worst that they can do. There's someone far greater that we should fear. It's the one who comes with authority to judge. The one who will expose all the things that are concealed. And I think it's important to clarify before we move on what it means by fearing God. If you've been in a growth group for a long time, this will come up every now and then as a discussion. What does it actually look like to fear God? And there are two distinct aspects of fear when it comes to God. And they apply, I think, to two different categories of people. Number one, the category of people, those who are part of God's family through faith in Jesus. And the second category is those who are not, those who have not repented of their sin and are outside of the kingdom. Because one of these groups should be afraid of God. The other fears him. These are not the same thing. Being afraid of God refers to the reaction of those who encounter God's presence without understanding his true nature. On the other hand, having fear of God describes the attitude of individuals who recognize the greatness and holiness of God while also trusting in his abundant goodness. Being afraid of God can be likened to someone who approaches God with trembling and anxiety, perceiving him as intimidating and a vengeful force. I think that person lacks an understanding of God's loving nature and perceives his presence as a source of terror. They may fear punishment or judgment, feeling unworthy or condemned in the face of God's holiness. Their relationship with God is characterized by a fear-driven action rather than genuine connection rooted in trust and love. On the other hand, having a fear of God for those who know him, 
is exemplified by an individual who stands in awe of God's majesty and holiness. They comprehend the greatness and power of God, recognizing his authority over all things. Despite this awareness, they approach God with reverence and trust and deep appreciation of his love, mercy, and grace. This fear stems from their profound understanding of his love, mercy, and grace. And they submit humbly to his will, seeking to live in accordance with his principles and finding comfort in his love. And for God's people, those who fear him, Jesus goes on to command them not to be afraid. Look at verse 6 with me. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. We're called to fear God. We're not called to be afraid of him. And if we fear God, if we grasp the majesty and power and holiness of God in our hearts, it will give us the confidence to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world. As we read on, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledged me before others, verse 8, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So I want to thank Liam for asking me to study and preach this passage with what some could call a theological grenade there at the very end of the blaspheming of the Spirit, but it's actually not that complex as we go through it. So let's follow the argument together and we'll come to that point. We've just come off the back of Jesus saying, do not fear man. What they say, what they do. Because the worst that they can do is kill the body. So be confident. And proclaim Jesus to the world acknowledge him before the world and let's get practical just for a second just think about the last few weeks and months when was the last time you spoke about jesus outside of a church setting just think think about it for 30 seconds when was the last time you spoke about jesus outside of a church setting to your neighbor your friends, to your family, to your work colleagues, to those you meet at the school, although it's the summer holidays, to those you're meeting up with who are from the school during the holidays for the kids to play with, the sports clubs you go to. How many non-Christians do you actually hang out with? How many non-Christians do you know and spend time with, getting to know? How are you reaching the world for Christ with the gospel? How are you being bold with the gospel? Have you had any opportunities recently to speak up, but you haven't? Why not? These are healthy questions to ask yourselves. I think for me, it's often the fear of man. I put self-worth my friendships, my own comfort, my own desire to be accepted above the fear of God. It stems from the state of my heart because my heart exposes what I value 
It exposes where my hope lies. So Jesus is warning us here. Publicly acknowledge me and you will be acknowledged before the angels. Do not acknowledge me and you will be disowned. There's people who are going to persecute you. We've seen that. The Pharisees here are going to persecute the disciples. They're going to kill Jesus. You could easily avoid persecution in your life by denying Jesus in this life. You can easily avoid persecution by denying Jesus. But the eternal consequences for those who deny Christ will be worse than the persecution you're seeking to avoid. It's a heavy thing to think about, the ways in which we don't speak up for Jesus. Even around the people we know and love so well. And I want to be clear. For those including me who find themselves guilty of disowning the Son of Man, not speaking up for Jesus when you could, there's forgiveness is only we ask. We only need to look at the disciples when Jesus was denied by them because of fear of persecution. There is forgiveness if only we ask. But for those who blaspheme against the Spirit, and to clarify that, is those who are persistent in their resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin and repel the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will not be forgiven. The one who has authority will throw them into hell. And it's a sober message. But as Jesus' followers here tonight, we have hope. God uses broken, sinful people like us, and he doesn't leave us to do it alone. Let's read on in verse 11 here. When you are brought before the synagogues, the rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So why are we not to be afraid to speak up for Jesus? Why are we not afraid in the conversations that we have over the dinner table with friends, when we're at the barbecue over the summer, when we're speaking to parents at the gate about what you did at the weekend, that we went to church to hear Jesus preached? Why are we not to fear? Well, he sends his spirit to help us. Whether we're being persecuted or when we have the opportunity to speak up for Jesus, his spirit works within us, helping us with what to say, working through us for the extension of his kingdom. So often we forget we are not the people who convert. We're not the people who do the saving work of Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit that does that. We are merely called to preach Jesus. We're merely called to preach the good news and Jesus by his spirit does the work of conversion. That is why we have confidence. Because Jesus is Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will work within us to transform us, to give us the words to say. What a joy it is to have that confidence. As we draw this section to a close, let me ask you these things. What is the state of your heart? Is it a heart that fears the Lord more than being afraid of man? Does your heart have a rightful fear of the Lord that causes you both not to be afraid of man, but to be bold in spirit? Bold for the gospel, bold for Jesus. Well, as if to drum this point in, 
on your heart longing and valuing the earthly over the heavenly, Jesus turns to address the crowds that had gathered. So he's been addressing his disciples. He now turns to the crowd that had gathered and he says this. And he hears this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And let's take a moment to digest Jesus' response here. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So it's an interesting interaction here that we have. We have Jesus who's been teaching uh, to vast crowds, answering questions, telling, telling parables, teaching profound truth. And here we have someone in the crowd that makes a demand of Jesus. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It isn't a question, it's a demand. So what does Jesus do? Well, as he usually does, Jesus has an opportunity to teach us with the goal of exposing the sinfulness of the man's heart. Because this question shows where this man finds value. Where does he find value? In wealth and in his money. It's always hard to talk about money. There are those with an abundance And there are those with very little, if nothing at all. And how we use money and the good things that God has given us can be a helpful, if not condemning, portrait of where we place value. John Piper has preached a phenomenal and in-depth exposition of this passage, just this section. I'd recommend you go listen to it uh, when you have time uh, after this. But... I'd like to just read how he starts. About this section, he says, Now let me make clear immediately that money itself is simply pieces of metal and pieces of paper. And the reason they are of any concern to us at all is that in our culture we have established that these pieces of metal and paper will function as currency. They will represent value. So money is significant for us because we exchange it for what we value. What you do with your money shows what you value with your heart. We value life and taste, so we give money for food. We value education, so we give money for books and tuition. We value entertainment probably too highly, so we give money for Netflix and ball games and concerts. We value the ministries of the church and the spread of the gospel, so we give money to the church and other ministries. Jesus says here later on in Luke 12, 34, we're going to get to that later tonight, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The movement of your money signifies the movement of your heart. Where your money goes, your heart is going. You exchange money for what you value, what you treasure. When I read this, and when I read the passage again, and as I studied it over the last few weeks, that cut me quite deep. That line, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. How culture, mainstream culture is that? There is no hope in the possessions that you have. You cannot be saved by your possessions. And to drill this point in, Jesus tells this parable. The ground of a certain rich man, in verse 16, yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Let's pause here. There's nothing wrong here with being profitable in life. Nothing at all. Remember the parables of the talents in Matthew 25. God does bless his people. It's not a bad thing 
when a farmer's land yields an abundant crop, when business owners do well, when you have been working nine to five, you've been working as a doctor, you've been working in your uh, business practice, you've been working somewhere else and you get uh, a pay increase. These in not themselves are not evil in itself. Money is not evil, but money can corrupt the heart and lie to us. When we start to find our dependency to be on money and lose, uh, sorry, we start to find our dependency to be on money and what money can provide, we, we start to yearn after the next big possession. And if we lose these possessions, if we lose these things that we've been placing our value on, we feel like we're losing a part of us. We feel like we're losing a part of our identity. So we work harder. We work longer. And without noticing, we've replaced gratitude towards God, the giver of all good things, with the love of the things we've been given, of money and possessions. And we see this here with the man in the parable. It's not the fruitful reward that kills him. It's the desires of the heart. Let's pick up the story in verse 18. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. What's this man's heart saying? Look at the abundance I have. Let's selfishly store that abundance so I can be comfortable, so I have no dependence on anyone else or need for, to work at anything ever again. I can enjoy my life. I can take it easy, do whatever I like. What he does with his money, what he does with his possessions, shows what he values, which is rest, food, drink, and happiness. Each one of these things is not inherently evil. But when they replace God and the fear of him, there's a problem and there are consequences. The things in which this man had put his value and worth, when it comes to eternity, he's called a fool. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? From a worldly viewpoint, this man had done everything right. He had the best retirement plan possible. The world has seen his genius in the eyes of the world. He's currently foolish in the kingdom of God. Your money, your possessions are not mighty to save. When it comes to death, as it comes for all of us, when we're called to give an account of our lives before the maker of heaven and earth, it will not matter in our case before God how much money is in our bank accounts, how many cars we had, houses we bought, summer houses we possessed, holidays we went on, the jewelry that we adorned, or household possessions. What will matter is our justification before God. See, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This man's heart is exposed. In a chilling way, so was the heart of the man who demanded Jesus that he tells his brother to divide the inheritance with him because his heart showed what he valued most. So what could this man in the parable have done differently? What's the antidote for this man? How could he have escaped the condemnation? 
well, a heart that fears God, there's a heart that realizes their dependence on God, with a heart that's rich towards God. He could have been rich towards God. This is how it will be, verse 21, with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. And what does it mean here? What does it mean to be rich towards God? Well, I think the summary that John Piper gives on this is incredibly helpful. He writes this, instead of the man saying, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many, many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, he would have said something like this. The man would have said, God, this is all yours. You have made my fields prosper. Show me how to express with my riches that you are my treasure and the riches are not. I already have enough. I don't need bigger, a bigger and bigger safety net. I don't need better food, better drink, better parties. I indeed want to make merry, but not in the self-indulgent parties with rich retirees. I want to make merry with the people who have been helped by my generosity. I want the fullest blessing of giving because you taught me, Lord, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See that in Acts 20, verse 35. And so far, we've seen a heart that needs a rightful fear of God. We've seen a heart that needs to be rich towards God. And finally, we come to a heart of faith in verses 22 to 34. Because right after telling this parable, Jesus continues teaching his disciples in more details as to the implications of what he has just said. Verse 22, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. What's he saying here? That life is not about possessions. Jesus has just shown them that. Be rich towards God. Life is not about storing the things of this world that will perish, spoil, and fade. Life is about more than that. Life is about seeking the kingdom, we see in verse 31. And so often we get distracted by the things of this world, the temporal, everyday concerns that take over, and we get more and more bogged down in the bubble of our everyday lives than seeking God's kingdom. Don't worry about these things, food and clothing. Worry distorts our perspective and redirects our attention away from what is important. Food and clothing are essential for survival, but life is more than that. So don't worry about these things. Don't let them replace the centrality of our calling to seek first his kingdom, to be kingdom-minded. So how does Jesus then address those worries? Well, consider the ravens, verse 24. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life since you cannot do this very little thing? Why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You have little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things and your father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom, his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. So easy for many of us who have been around church for a long time to kind of brush over these verses, to say, yeah, 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 Jesus is telling us that I will provide, so don't worry. 
let's boil it down to that. But let's look at these and what's being said and let it dwell in our hearts once again because I know there are many people in our church who are going through very, very hard times who need encouragement, who need to hear the words of Jesus here and redirect them to the never-failing promises of God. Jesus here is affirming God's promise to care for his children by asking them to consider creation. Look at the birds. They don't labor to produce fruit. They're provided for. Look at the flowers. They don't graft a hard day labor yet. Look at how they're clothed. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. If God can feed them and clothe them, how much more valuable are, are God's children and how much more will he provide for them? And it's a good idea to put this into some context. Because the people that Jesus was speaking to and addressing in the crowds, they were not high society. They're not wealthy people. They're living meal to meal, day to day, hour to hour. They are hard grafters, fishermen who sell a little in the marketplace. The people are the poorest in society in which they lived. And they had every cause for anxiety about what they would eat and about what they would wear. They did not have an abundance. They did not have plenty. And if we think about our lives, each of us here tonight, and if we really think about this, um, for me, for us, it's not a case of will I eat tomorrow or have clothes to wear. It's more like, what will I eat tomorrow? And what of the 25 different t-shirts am I going to pick out from the wardrobe to put on tomorrow? That doesn't negate what Jesus is saying here. In fact, it brings it into an even starker contrast. Because here Jesus is making more of a point of what our hearts value and what happens when these things overtake value in the kingdom. As David Powelson makes a point in his great article, Don't Worry, ask yourself these questions. What are the anxious and worrisome thoughts that hijack and seize control of your mind? What are the things that make you anxious and worried? Just take 30 seconds to think about that. What makes you anxious and worried? Is it money? How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to make payments on the car? How am I going to put fuel in the car? How am I going to pay my electricity bill? I've been made redundant. Where am I going to get a new job? About the kids. Since becoming a parent, I've never been more worried about things. Where are my kids going to go to school? Are they going to make any friends? Are they going to be accepted by their peer group? What about family? What about people in your family who are not Christians? The worry, the anxiousness of them not knowing Jesus as the Lord and Savior. What about health? The health concerns that we have, we're not feeling well, we've got family members who have cancer, the things that come into our mind, the things that we worry about. We dwell on these things. We allow them to sap our energies contort our feelings, leave us burdened with fear and worry and anxiousness. It affects our whole lives. And the lives of those around us are affected as well. More than that, it affects our relationship with God. In many ways, our anxiousness and worry can be saying that we're actually not trusting God and his promises. So for the Christian, as someone who believes in Jesus and his saving work on the cross, we have so many reasons to not be anxious. In fact, worrying gets us nowhere. It does not move us any further forward. In fact, it shows us what our hearts value. Just like we saw earlier where we see where our money goes, exposes what our hearts value. What you worry about exposes what you value too. 
So what do we do when we start to worry about these things? What do you do when you feel, when what you feel starts to overtake the truths that we know as Andy was speaking to us this morning from Psalm 13? What do we do when our feelings, our anxiousness and worries start to overtake the truths that we know about God and what he's done for us? Well, here's four quick things. Number one, turn to God as he's in control and he's working out his purposes. Turn to God. So often we can be so deep in our own minds, we don't look up and seek God's face. We don't ask for wisdom. We don't ask for peace. We wallow. And when we do ask God, we're too busy getting on with our lives that we don't stop to thank him for the evidence we see of him working out his purposes in our lives. Maybe God doesn't work them out in the way that we would have done it, but in the way that will ultimately bring glory to him. And this week, when you feel worried or anxious, why don't you stop? Why don't you take a minute and pray, God, I know you're in control. I know you work out your purposes for your glory. I submit to you and your will. Give me wisdom where I need it. Peace in my heart. May I live to serve you in your kingdom. Show me ways in which I can trust in you. Number one, turn to God when you're anxious or worried. He is in control. Number two, turn to God because he is faithful and he keeps his promises. One day, just pick up your Bible and scan through cover to cover. And you will see God keeping his promises to his people. Starting way back in Genesis, we see time after time God making covenants and promises with his people that he keeps And the most precious one of all, he keeps his Jesus. Practically this week, what could you do when you feel anxious or worried? Pick up your Bible. Turn to God's word. See the evidence of God's grace fulfilling all that he has promised, including the words that we've been studying tonight. Look back in ways in your life where you've seen God's promises fulfilled. Prayers answered. God working your life. See where he has provided for you in the past and he will provide for you in the future. Number two, turn to God as he is faithful. Number three, surround yourself with brothers and sisters in Christ who share your burdens. Please, if you're anxious or worried, speak to people. Don't let it burden you down. Surround yourself with people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who will pray for you, encourage you. We have such a privilege of being a family who look after one another. Please look out for one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Be sincere in your relationships with your kingdom family. We don't walk this path with Jesus alone. We've got brothers and sisters on this road with us. When we stumble, we're helped up by each other. Number four, life is not about money or about possessions. It's about giving yourself to the kingdom. So the question then becomes as we come to a close here, what does it look like to seek first the kingdom, or to put it another way, what does it look like to be rich towards God? Well, it means you look to God and his kingdom first for everything you need and to live according to his good and perfect will. We will trust in God for his provision and for our daily needs to be met. We will come to God in faith that he will provide not only our daily bread, but will provide something that nothing else on this earth can provide. No possession can provide, which is a restored relationship with him. That through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, we can become part of God's family. If we only repent of our sins, turn away from our rebellion against God, 
turn to him saying sorry for the sins that we've committed and then commit our life to serving him and glorifying him. And as we go along our road of sanctification, our hearts will be changed more into the likeness of Jesus. His concerns will become our concerns. The love he has for his people will become the love that we have for his people. We'll seek to serve others. We'll be generous with what we have, even to the point of selling our possessions and giving to those in need. God has provided abundantly to so many of us here in this church. If we take this message on board, we'll start to seek ways that we can be a blessing to others. We'll start to ask God how we can be the way in which he will provide for his people. How can we be the way in which God fulfills his promises to other brothers and sisters in Christ that they not need be anxious about what they will eat or what they will wear through God's generous and abundant provision to his people, we can be the provision of daily bread for those who need it. For many people, why don't we reduce the size of our storage barns? The way we add towards others, in the way that we add towards money, in the way that we add towards possessions, what treasures will our heart expose? Are they treasures here on earth or are they treasures in heaven that will never fail? No thief will come near and no moth destroy. Why are we not to be anxious, afraid or worried? Because with a heart that rightfully fears God, will lead to a heart that is rich towards God, which was a heart of faith in God. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Father, may our hearts be changed by the power of your spirit. Father, may we be a people who fears you with a rightful fear. May we be a people who are rich towards you, who seek your kingdom your kingdom first above all else. Father, may we be those whose hearts are faithful to you and faithful in our demonstration of our love and the things that you have given to us that we may be generous to others. That, Father, we may be those who are an answer to the prayer of your people for daily bread and provision. Father, help us to be those who love our brothers and sisters in Christ above ourselves. And Father, may we this week and in the months ahead be transformed more into the likeness of Christ. May his heart be our heart. May his will be our will. And Father, may we seek to be a church that glorifies you in everything that we do. Father, our treasure is in heaven. And we can't wait for that day. Be with us as we go from here tonight. As we sing our songs of praise to close. That Father, you are everything to us. In Jesus' name.